Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Anna Pechenkina is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. She is from Ukraine. A few weeks ago, we talked with her about the situation there. Now, weeks into the Russian invasion of Ukraine, we're going to check back in with Professor Pechenkina today. We'll ask how our friends in Ukraine are doing, their reactions to what's happening and uh, what the likeliest outcome is. Of course, many other subtopics. And you can get your question or comment to us by email to upraccess at gmail.com, upraccess at uh, gmail.com. So, Anna Pechenkina, welcome back to the program. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me. So this has got to be... I don't know, uh, the very least interesting times. I don't know, distressing. I like to maybe, maybe have you take your professor hat off first. And uh, as a Ukrainian, um, what what are your feelings at this point? Mm, uh, it, well, it is a catastrophe for my home country. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't think I've ever used the word catastrophe literally in my life before. But... Um, uh, I imagine many of your listeners have uh, uh, watched uh, President Zelensky's address to the Congress yesterday and that video uh, where he showed the contrast bef- between the peaceful life that was in Ukraine just three weeks ago and bombardment and indiscriminate shelling of residential areas, uh, the devastation, the refugee outflows, the largest refugee outflow on the European continent, uh, since World War II, um, yeah, it's um, uh, it's difficult to maintain your faith in humanity. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, just it's horrifying. The images coming out, the the, the deaths, the refugees flowing out. Uh, do you have friends uh, back there you keep in touch with? Yes, I do. Um, most of my friends and former classmates. Uh, I grew up in Ukraine, and I only moved to the U.S. Uh, as a as a college student. So I always say that I'm I wasn't as I was a fully formed adult when I came to this mm-hmm. country. Um, so uh, most of my former classmates, most of my former um, friend, uh, most of my friends have been able to leave Ukraine. My family was able to leave Ukraine. Uh, some of my friends are still there. I have a friend um, uh, with whom we grew up in eastern Ukraine, and. Um, he moved to Kiev for college, and his entire career is in, is in Kiev, and he's uh, currently uh, in the resistance there. And, you know, initially, a few weeks ago, when he joined the resistance, um, uh, he was told that uh, he was more useful as the military lawyer, kind of not quitting his job, because they had so many volunteers at the time. But a few days ago, he was told that now, as the siege of Kiev is, in, um, is um, intensifying and the shelling of residential areas is uh, underway, uh, now is the time for him to join. Mm. I have another friend who moved to Western Ukraine a few years ago after escaping the war in the Donbas, because as uh, um, even though in 2014, Russian aggression against Ukraine kind of was uh, quickly forgotten because it wasn't a large-scale invasion. But in 2014, uh, the annexation of Crimea and then the Donbas War drove uh, about 2 million people out of that region. And so one of them was my friend who uh, moved to first Kiev and then to western Ukraine. And he cited his absolute fear. And at the time, we uh, deeply disagreed about it because I could not envision a large-scale invasion of Ukraine. 
Uh, but he cited his fear because he saw that war firsthand and he moved to Western Ukraine. And even though Western Ukraine is currently the safest place, still in every city they have these uh, volunteer uh, organizations. They call them territorial defense battalions. And most of the men uh, who are able and willing um, um, and uh, uh, volunteer to participate in them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, you know, so there is resistance, right? Oh, yes, uh, and, absolutely. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, just, just very brave. and. Uh, but also uh, the Ukrainian army. Yeah. Has, uh, uh, so it's, a, it's an army of 260,000 men and women. And uh, they have shown that in the past eight years, the reforms, the increased funding, uh, a lot of Western support have uh, have produced a, a, an, a, an important result that we're seeing today. Yeah. Now, arms are flowing in from the West, I think, at this, this point. Yes. And in Ukraine, um, everyone with whom I'm speaking, with whom I'm keeping in touch, um, they are surprised that the level of um, uh, material equipment uh, is, um, uh, they believe, is higher for Ukrainians than it is for Russians. Mm. Uh, it's probably, it's probably, it's possible that uh, kind of uh, uh, there are two things at play. First, Russians are not have not been using their fleet yet. They haven't been using their aviation as successfully as was expected. Uh, but at the same time, just if you look at the uh, tank um, equipment, at other armored v- vehicles, those are quite uh, old and surprising. It, it is quite surprising to see these abandoned vehicles throughout Ukraine, and all of them end up on, on TikTok. Uh, if you're interested, you can um, you can see them. That kind of uh, Russia. Uh, has been advertising for years that they had conducted a full restructuring, full rearmament of their military, and so it, it was very co- it was a common view in the West and in Ukraine uh, that that military was ten feet tall, and now to see that all that rearmament was just on paper, that clearly it's the result of massive corruption campaign where someone got very wealthy, <laughs> but the actual heavy equipment has never been um, uh, updated. Uh, it is quite a, quite a shock to see that, yeah. Yeah. I want to talk about the, uh, you know, this, the, I guess, the, the fight in the, in, in, in the people, you know, the, this resistance, where, the, where that's coming from. I want to start with Zelensky. Are, are you surprised where <laughs> he's become a, this heroic figure? Uh, you know, came out of entertainment. Uh, he was a stand-up comic. There, there are videos of him on the Ukrainian version of, uh, you know, the, the dance program. Absolutely. Uh, I am, as oh, the overwhelming majority of Ukrainians. Uh, not only the rest of the world is surprised, uh, but uh, um, the country is uh, very much impressed. And um, uh, he is not. He was not a beloved president. He was a failing president who would probably struggle to get reelected. So before the war, his approval rating was around twenty percent. Uh, it's very common because you, uh, in Ukraine, because Ukraine is a um, even though it is a flawed democracy, it is a, a free society where uh, there is no government censorship. There are, there are a lot of oligarchic interests controlling the media, So, but at the same time, uh, there are different narratives, unlike in Russia, available to the population, such that um, the uh, 
incumbent is rarely being portrayed in a glorified way. So his approval rating was low. Um, he was viewed as um, someone lacking professional background, even though, by the way, he has a, a law degree. Um, but yes, his career and his success came from entertainment. Uh, after, but at the same time, now, looking back, uh, there were some signs that we could have noticed, and I myself chose to disregard them at the time, that had pointed towards his strength of character. There were multiple assassinations in his uh, inner circle uh, that are widely speculated, so I could not find proof of this. So I'm not, I cannot assert this with confidence, but it, it looks consistent with everything we know about the patterns of how Russian foreign intelligence is operating, that these were Russian intelligence campaigns. Uh, so there were some assassinations that uh, kind of clearly were interpreted inside Ukraine as um, threats against him and his family, and he never once uh, changed his course. Uh, so these assassinations happened in uh, uh, late 2020, early 2021, when Zelensky abandoned the Minsk agreements, which were extremely favorable to Russia, and started his campaign um, inside Ukraine to shut down uh, Russian propaganda channels, uh, TV channels inside Ukraine. And he also arrested the financial assets of Putin's personal friend, Viktor Medvedchuk. Um, and so I'm sure all of those uh, things in concert were viewed as a personal rebuke by Putin. And uh, those attacks on his inner circle did not change his course. So in that sense, we saw that he was a personally brave uh, uh, human. Um, but at the same time, I, I never thought that he would be compared to Churchill and it would be kind of a meaningful comparison. Yeah, the, the surprising things of come out of history, right? Mm -hmm. I want to talk about the identity. This is an important part of it, right? Um, there are indications that, that Putin thought that, uh, well, well, Putin's view of it is, right, that there is no Ukraine, Ukrainian national identity. It's it's all larger Russia, right? Um, but obviously, we're seeing there's a very strong Ukrainian national identity. Um, talk about that. Yeah, this is the greatest irony of this conflict. Because until 2014, so until Putin's first round of aggression against Ukraine in 2014, when he annexed Crimea and instigated the war in Donbas, Ukraine truly was one of the most polarized countries on the planet. Every presidential election was won by the hair-thin margin. Ukraine was almost evenly split into Russian-speaking South East, and that was the pro-Russian region. That is the region where I'm from, by the way. And the pro-Western, more Ukrainian-speaking um, West Center. Yeah, Center West. So uh, in that sense, uh, Putin um, and I, I imagine he's receiving these uh, flawed intelligence reports. Uh, so the information that he's receiving was more or less accurate as of 2013. But what happened after his initial aggression against Ukraine completely restructured and consolidated Ukrainian society? As a response to, as often as the case, when a country is facing an external threat, the society is consolidating. 
And that's exactly what happened in Ukraine. So the two elections that happened after 2014 aggression, the uh, uh, the election in two, in 2014 of Petro Poroshenko and then uh, the election in 2019 of, of Volodymyr Zelensky, they were won by overwhelming majority, something that has never happened in the history of Ukraine. So Zelensky received more than 73% of popular vote. And if you look at the map, it's no longer a map of two Ukraines. It's a consolidated Ukraine where he's getting majorities in almost every single part of the country. And and most significantly, that very distinct border between southeast and center-west is completely gone. So ironically, it's Putin's own foreign policy that has completely reshaped identities inside Ukraine, and there is no longer the pro-Russian Southeast. He himself, with his own aggressive actions, has undone all the goodwill towards integration with Russia, towards more economic trade with Russia, towards potential military alliance with Russia. None of that is is, is um, any more present on, in the political space of Ukraine. Yeah. What do you make of the response in the West? Uh, for example, I was telling you before we went on, on the air, went to the opera last night in Salt Lake City. Mm-hmm. Before the opera started, the, the chorus came out and sang the Ukrainian national anthem. And that, that's not unusual these days, right? Mm-hmm. It's uh, a lot of, uh, you know, beyond the military support, a lot of moral support uh, for, for Ukraine. Um, but, you know, I, I wonder why that wasn't there for Georgia or for, you know, Crimea or, you know, what, what's different this time, do you think? Mm, I think the scale, uh, the scale of aggression is, is what makes the difference. And the, uh, uh, because all the conflicts that you're describing, it is true that that, that, that has been the pattern, right? Starting with Pridnestrovia, or Transnistria region of Moldova in the early 1990s. So it has been the, the, the pattern of Russian foreign policy where they would uh, interfere, sometime, oftentimes instigate a, a seemingly civil conflict in these former Soviet republics, uh, de facto uh, create an, inde- kind of an independent... Um, but Russian supported because these enclaves, rebel-held enclaves, would not be able to exist without Russian support. So create these rebel-held enclaves and put military bases into these enclaves. And we all thought, myself included, the standard political science line used to be that the until this Ukraine invasion was that Putin is doing this, and this is a clever foreign policy strategy in order to prevent these former Soviet republics from entering NATO, because NATO has a policy that countries with an ongoing territorial conflict are not welcome to apply. They need to first resolve their territorial conflicts and only then they can apply. So all of these conflicts, Transnistria in Moldova, Donbas in Ukraine, South Ossetia and Abkhazia in, in Georgia, they all fit this pattern, but at the same time, they were all very limited. So I think it's quite natural that we're seeing a different reaction to the full scale and the full invasion of a 44 or a 40 million person nation, Texas-sized territory being attacked from all sides. Uh, so the, the sheer scale of suffering, the refugee outflows, the, the scale of destruction is completely different. Mm-hmm. 
Do you think that uh, Mr. Putin thought this was going to be quick and easy? There is there is some some indications that maybe he really really thought that 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 you know and and you could forgive him for you know some pieces of evidence a lot of Russian speakers in Ukraine and if he believes his own view of things there is really no Ukrainian national identity and that that, that they'd be welcomed or at least to be quick and easy. It is hard to uh, to think that someone could be so deeply mistaken. Right, because it really feels like his the intelligence that he was receiving hasn't been updated since 2013. So his actions are designed for Ukraine uh, as uh, before the annexation of Crimea. That that kind of split Ukraine, where there is a half of the country very much entertaining the idea of supporting some sort of alliance or further political integration with Russia. So it, one way to explain this puzzling decision to invade Ukraine, and um, there is no way to uh, describe this other than one of the greatest strategic blunders ever ever made, uh, because you cannot imagine, it is very difficult to imagine an outcome where Russia emerges out of this five years down the road or 10 years down the road better, better than it, it would have without this invasion. So in terms of Russian interest, this is a, this is a terrible decision, and it looks like a massive miscalculation. So I agree with the premise of your question that it is a big puzzle. How could this happen? So one explanation is that the intelligence that he was receiving was so bad. I imagine purposefully bad, because uh, oftentimes in personalist dictatorships, the um, desire to avoid immediate punishment by the executive leads to um, presenting flawed information. Right, you know, in political science, we normally say that well, this is the explanation. Personalist dictatorships, this is their greatest weakness. the The executive never receives good good information. I don't think we should uh, pat ourselves on the back as political scientists and say that oh, this is this is the explanation. This is this suffices, mainly because there is still a puzzle here, because right now, just uh, a few days ago. The news came out of Russia that the first purges have started and the chief foreign intelligence um, uh, and his deputy have been placed under house arrest. In Russian media, this has been presented as a house arrest for corruption, but that is a very common line in Russia. Uh, clearly, uh, the, the the foreign intelligence chief is responsible for the information, and specifically, this specific person was responsible for maintaining Russian influence within former Soviet republics and specifically Ukraine. So it's quite clear that even if Putin truly believed uh, this false and in, false information about how willing Ukrainians were to welcome Russian military. At least now he can see that the reality is vastly different. They're viewed as occupiers. They're not welcome. Every Ukrainian is prepared to fight this war in order to defend their sovereignty. So um, the puzzle here, as a political scientist, I think the puzzle here that we should really focus on is that how can we explain that in this specific case, the foreign intelligence chief and his deputy still chose not to moderate the type of information they were providing the executive in order to avoid the catastrophic decision 
which was, in this case, invasion of Ukraine. Because once that decision was made, there is no way for them to cover up their false information. That decision triggered the full revelation of how much they were misleading the executive. So I, I view this as a great theoretical puzzle, and I hope that my colleagues and, and I'm thinking also of research projects in this area, but I think, I, ho I hope that we kind of don't just uh, wash our hands and say, oh, personalist regimes, when, when you have an authoritarian regime with personalist elements, which is what Putin Russia, Putin's Russia has become, um, it, it actually has transitioned from an information-based autocracy to a violence-based autocracy recently. So um, I think it's too simple for us to just say, oh, they don't get good information. It is still puzzling that, these, um, um, that his immediate environment chose to give information that led to this catastrophic decision. Mm -hmm. Let's take a break. Uh, we'll obviously have much more uh, when we come back. We are talking with Anna Pechenkina. She is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University. Uh, she is from Ukraine, uh, grew up uh, there, and uh, came to the U.S. Uh, for college, right? That's right. And uh, now is a uh, professor at uh, Utah State University. So well-positioned, obviously, to talk about this. We're grateful she's in with us today. You can get us a question or comment by email to upraxis at gmail.com, upraxis at gmail.com. Uh, when we come back, uh, I want to talk about potential outcomes. You know, there's before we went on the air, you were saying, well, there's pessimistic, optimistic. I'll have mm -hmm. you give a range of what you think possible outcomes here might be. We'll have more following this. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Anna Pechenkina. She is from Ukraine. In fact, uh, Russian-speaking eastern part of Ukraine, right? Um, she came to the U.S. as a college student. She's now assistant professor of political science at Utah State University. So personally and professionally, she has, of course, a great interest in Ukraine. We're talking about the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the program today. Uh, so, Professor Pachinkina, let's just go right to that uh, question that I teased before the break. Um, of course, we don't know what's going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. um, but maybe outline, you know, worst case, best case, uh, what are the range of outcomes here? Yeah. Um, yeah, so this is, uh, this is really... Um, my area of research because I study how the situations of war can transition into situations of peace. And so if we take um, the standard bargaining model of war duration and outcome, and we apply this to this case, then uh, what, are the, uh, what are the main features that, that um, make this uh, conflict stand out? It's rare when the events on the battlefield differ so dramatically from the expectations. Most of the time, the events on the battlefield uh, don't diverge that much from our expectations. So in this sense, uh, the, uh, this conflict falls within the category that we wouldn't normally expect to drag on for many months or, or more so years. So most of the time, when you have a situation where the expectations and reality are, the, when there is a big gap between the expectations and the reality, in this case, the expectations that the Russian army would uh, take, take over Ukraine, would able to force its leadership to flee, 
and uh, install some sort of Russian puppet government, pro-Russia government in Kiev uh, within a week. Uh, the it, it looks like the um, actual expectation was by February 28th. Um, that, that did not happen. Moreover, there were multiple events of sabotage by the Russian military servicemen themselves. So there's a low morale of the Russian army. And then uh, bad equipment, bad logistics, right? So uh, it, it's really shocking to see that uh, whoever was planning the operation did not think about the supply lines, did not think about the supply of gasoline, something so basic. Um, supply of food for the troops. So all of this tells us that the revisionist side, which is Russia in this case, should scale down its demands. Do we see this uh, happening in real life? Yes, but not as dramatically as we would expect. So uh, really good news uh, started um, coming out of the Kremlin last week, last Monday, when uh, the one of the most... Um, one of the weirdest uh, demands that Russians are um, issuing against Ukraine is denazification. Uh, it is difficult to understand what exactly they mean. This is a special obsession of Putin. Uh, it stems from, you know, it goes back all the way to 2013 peaceful protests in Ukraine where a far-right group was participating in the protests against a pro-Russia, then pro-Russian president in Ukraine, and Putin keeps referring to them as if that group is in power. Nothing could be further from the truth. They ran for parliament, they didn't make it. One of their leaders ran for president, he's not. He, he received less than 1% of the popular vote. So these people are not in government in Ukraine. But I think in Putin's mind, that meant that they would be able to uh, force the Ukrainian leadership to resign, and they would have some sort of show trials, and and kind of they would co concoct some bogus charges of uh, anti uh, policies, anti-Russian speaking population uh, policies designed to harm the Russian speaking population of Ukraine, which is of course absurd because right now what we're seeing is that. The Russian-speaking parts of Ukraine, so this is the territory that is supposed to, you know, uh, be welcoming to Russia. This is the territory that Putin supposedly wanted to annex. These are the parts of Ukraine that are being shelled and destroyed the most. So uh, it is difficult to understand the strategy here. But let's go back to the, uh, um, to the optimistic scenario here. So the optimistic scenario is that Ukraine has overperformed the expectations. Russia has underperformed the expectations. So that means that the initial demands, the initial demands by Russians were neutral status of Ukraine, no NATO membership, or neutrality model, denazification. So let's, um, I, I, it's difficult for me to even say this word in regards to Ukraine. So let's say change of government, installing puppet, uh, puppet uh, pro-Russian government. Recognition of Crimea and southern Donbass as um, Russian uh, territory. These demands have been, so we, we would expect, based on the theoretical model, to for Russia to scale down these demands. What are we seeing today? We're seeing that Russians are, have dropped that uh, government change demand. So they're still asking for neutrality, 
and the Ukrainian side has basically agreed to this. So Zelensky has, on multiple occasions, has already said that NATO doesn't want us. We have been told that the doors of NATO are open, but these are just this is just cheap talk. It's very clear that we're not a part of NATO, never going to be the part of NATO. We need to be the only uh, the only guarantee of defense that Ukraine can have is its own strong army, and potentially, if NATO membership is truly not on on in the cards, then perhaps there could be some real guarantees provided by perhaps United States and the United Kingdom. So that would be something much closer to the Austrian model, where Austria committed to not enter any of the military alliances, but at the same time, the United States guaranteed its security. Mm. Then uh, Russians still demand the recognition of Crimea and southern Donbass as, um, as independent. Crimea and Donbass, these are difficult issues domestically. And already in Ukraine, even though the war is raging on, you see that a lot of Ukrainian opposition is already making this difficult for Zelensky. Mm. Uh, But these are the issues that could be discussed. And if I were advising the Ukrainian government, I would say that uh, one of the ways to kind of um, make a commitment without uh, politically hurting yourself would be to force this issue into the future, to postpone it into the future, and to say, we will commit to recognize the results of the free and fair referendum that will express the true will of Crimean people 20 years down the road, but it has to be OEC um, uh, organization of European states certified as a free and fair referendum. And same thing for the Southern Donbass, for instance. So there are ways to achieve this agreement. And the good news is that we are seeing uh, the Russian side scale down their demands, even though not as dramatically as we would expect, given how badly they're performing on the battlefield. Yeah. So worst case scenario, uh, worst case scenario would include nuclear options, wouldn't it? Do you worry about that? Mm, yes and no. Mm. So on the one hand, um, I don't think uh, even after having seen uh, Putin make this catastrophic decision for his own country. So this is a true catastrophe for Ukraine, but it is also a catastrophe for Russia. You cannot imagine a worse decision. So it, it, with this invasion, he has taken away the future of, of uh, almost 200 million people, right? Uh, um, total, the population of uh, Russia and Ukraine. At the same time, the reason why I'm saying no is because it's uh, kind of to, to order a nuclear strike on uh, one of the NATO countries. And so far, the threats have been truly against NATO allies and the threats have been to deter NATO allies from providing offensive weapons and entering the conflict. Mainly because uh, the U.S. and the allies have the second strike capability. So when you are ordering that strike, you have to be prepared to die yourself. So in that sense, no. So mutual assured destruction uh, works uh, to deter each other because both sides have second strike capability And in that way, it does not make sense to pull the trigger first. However, why do I worry about this? Uh, Is the accident, is the chance of the accident. Every time uh, the DEFCON level goes up, every time the Russian security, um, 
is being uh, the security level of um, kind of of preparedness for nuclear attack is is rising. Uh, we are uh, we are putting ourselves in danger of an accident, right? So, like the famous uh, the famous episode of 1983, when uh, Russian software that is supposed to detect American missiles coming in malfunctioned, and it's it was a um, the um, uh, it was the reflection of the sun that was uh, detected by the software, but the software showed that there were. Uh, a few incoming missiles from the United States. And it was really up to the operator, Lieutenant Stanislav Petrov at the time, to make the decision not to report it to his upper command. So imagine the entire fate of the world just uh, was in the hands of one person who made the correct decision. So he decided that if Americans were attacking the Soviet Union, they would not be just firing one or two missiles. They would be firing hundreds. So he restarted the system, and indeed, there was no such detection. And he the, he made the correct decision. But frankly, we just got lucky, right? Yeah. So I worry about an accident. Yeah. How likely is it, uh, do you think, uh, another outcome that's being talked about is takes longer than they thought, but at a certain point, the, the Russians, just superior military force, essentially occupy Ukraine, occupy the, the major cities, and then we enter a, a long and brutal period of insurgency. Yes, it is a possibility. Um, I, I think the, um, the negotiated agreement and kind of, you know, the full-scale Russia propaganda trying to sell this as a victory at home is... Slightly is still slightly more likely. Perhaps I'm being overly optimistic here because it's just too hard to imagine that devastating outcome that you're portraying. But it is, of course, possible. It is within the range. So in this case, the reason why I'm saying that it still looks slightly less likely is that it would it would probably require higher level of mobilization from Russia. So probably reservists, uh, probably sending more riot police to Ukraine, you basically need more troops, more manpower to occupy such a big territory. And given the fact that Russian sanctions have had an effect already, but we haven't seen yet the full force of the, the full effect of these sanctions, I think it would be a, a surprising decision for this regime uh, that is that has become this violence-based authoritarian regime to send even more of its riot police out of the country while they need uh, all, all that manpower to suppress protests, potential protests inside Russia. So uh, in that sense, it's a, and, and then it seems like China has um, been wary to send uh, heavy equipment so they've, or uh, more so troops. So it really seems like Russians would be stretched for manpower in, the, in, in terms of occupying Ukraine. But you're right that the, hor the horrific outcome here is the you know, multi-year, multi-decade insurgency where there is occupation by Russia and a Western-funded insurgency inside Ukraine. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about about, about sanctions. Uh, how, how do you think they're working, and other responses from the West? Um, and uh, I want to get to talk about information. 
disinformation, misinformation, propaganda. Yes. That's a whole battlefront, right? Big aspect well. of this one. Um, so we're talking with Anna Pechenkina. She's assistant professor of political science at Utah State University. We'll have more following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. Tom Williams. We're talking with Anna Pechenkina. Uh, she grew up in Ukraine, uh, moved to the United States for college. Uh, right now, she's assistant professor of political science at Utah State University. So, a uh, perfectly placed to uh, talk about this personally and professionally. We're talking about uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine on the program today. Um, so, I want to talk. You, you brought up sanctions before the break. I want to talk a bit about that. Uh, these, I, th- I think, we're all agreed that the West has no appetite for. Boots on the ground, right? Um, and so the weapon is sanctions. Mm-hmm. And uh, these seem to be pretty unprecedented sanctions. Absolutely. This is, yeah, this is the, the kind of the, the DEFCON 5, if you mm-hmm. will, you know. Yeah. Uh, do, do you think they're working? Uh, yes. I think the, uh, definitely no one expected uh, such a wide spectrum of sanctions and such unity in the West. I really think one of the reasons why Putin went for, uh, I don't know, it's hard to say, uh, it's hard to explain the full-scale uh, operation, full-scale invasion of Ukraine, but uh, I thought that he would go for a limited um, military operation, which is much more his style and fits within the pattern of his foreign policy. But I thought the reason for that would be uh, the uh, the German election results in September 2021 uh, when Angela Merkel's um, pa- uh, party for the first time in, in decades hasn't made it into the ruling coalition. And in that sense, I thought it was a clear sign that Germany would never join sanctions against Nord, Nord Stream 2. And yet they did. And uh, all of that thanks to domestic politics of Germany. The Angela Merkel's uh, CDU party basically shamed the chancellor and parliament and said, this is why you're going to lose the next election. And uh, yeah, it didn't take much time for, for Germany to join um, and, and be completely in concert with everyone, in agreement with everyone on this front. So again, ironically, just like I said that Putin's foreign policy, his aggression against Ukraine in 2014 consolidated Ukrainian society and completely evaporated the divide within Ukraine, uh, we are seeing that the West, if if we're so lucky to avoid any accidents and, and, and the spread of this conflict, uh, what we're seeing is consolidation of the West, consolidation of the NATO. Um, and in this sense, uh, this is a wake-up call for Europe and all the, um, all the disagreements that we saw in the European Union uh, probably will be easier to to resolve now that there is a perception of a strong external threat. Let's talk about uh, propaganda. This is, uh, you know, Putin has been seen in some circles as a master propagandist and very successful. And in some cases, it doesn't seem to be as successful externally this time around, although, uh, you know, indications are still pretty successful in Russia. Yeah, I think that's exactly the correct way to characterize it, that Russia has lost the information war uh, in the broader world, but it, it is still able to maintain control of the narrative inside Russia, surprisingly. One of the, one of the signs why the 
this invasion, this war against Ukraine has not gone according to plan is that the Russian government did not close the opposition media, which were continuing to operate until just a few weeks ago uh, inside Russia. Uh, but only after the war was being portrayed as a complete disaster in these uh, opposition outlets, and in any other country, we would not call them opposition. We would just call them regular media. They're just reporting the facts. But Echo of Moscow, TV Rain, um, uh, multiple news sources in Siberia, they were all closed down. And they, they have passed, uh, in Russia, the parliament passed the law that if um, someone spreads in their social media any messages that they call fake descriptions, but literally, if you say the word war, you could be prosecuted up to 15 years. So that's a real sign of weakness of that regime, that they no longer can just spin their way, uh, spin reality to their willing. They have to use force and re true brutality, uh, this, this enormous repression in order to control the narrative. So in that, I think that is the silver lining here that we're seeing that the propaganda machine needs the, can no longer operate on its own and create this Orwellian reality. They need the uh, extra violent repression in order to mean, kind of make sure that there is no alternative narrative being uh, offered inside Russia. And uh, here in the U.S., I mean, the, the, the media is, you know, you, you Turn on just about any outlet. It's pretty pro-Ukrainian, right? But uh, Russians are still working uh, to to plant things in the, you know the in the U.S. media and with some sporadic success in in in, in certain pockets. Uh, yes, absolutely. And I just want to um, kind of uh, make sure that. Uh, mm, so when I said silver lining, what I mean is that it just shows the weakness of the Russian regime. Right. Uh, so, uh, yes, what you're describing is um, something that I encountered just recently. I was surprised uh, to be asked a question um, at, a, uh, at, a, at a different radio station about um, uh, Zelensky's past and uh, that he, uh, the formulation of the question involved the words that he's a thug and is opposed to democracy and why should we as a democracy, we the United States as a democracy, defend such a guy? Why should we take his side? He's not a true Democrat. And I was really surprised by that question. I ex and this, I, I, um, uh, I imagine this refers to his policy in late 2020, early 2021, which provoked Russia's uh, uh, amassment of troops on the Ukrainian border. Uh, what I mentioned to you earlier that he closed down three Russian language channels in Ukraine, which were um, the propaganda machine inside inside Ukraine, a Russian propaganda machine inside Ukraine. And he arrested the personal assets of Putin's close uh, friend and uh, godfather to one of his daughters, Viktor Medvedchuk. And I'm sure that was viewed as a personal affront for Putin on Putin's behalf. Uh, but... It is true that we can dispute the, you know, the exact legality of those actions. Um, as someone who grew up in Ukraine and considers Ukraine my home country and wishes Ukraine the best, I really think that the, those are defensible positions. 
um, even um, even if they were not necessarily within the exact letter of the law, but I think this message of Zelensky not respecting democratic norms really misses the bigger picture. And this is how Russian propaganda operates. They always take uh, some fact and they will spin it such that you, without knowing the broader context, you will really, even though there is the kernel of truth, and like if you do just a cursory search online, you will find some supporting information for that. But um, the broader context is completely misrepresented. So when, say, um, uh, Utah local media think, kind of propel the story, and I did a search and I found out that um, this was uh, planted by RT, which is the English language uh, um, TV channel of uh, the, the Russian propaganda machine, they have planted this story um, and uh, this story was picked up by, by multiple media sources in the West. But that story, if you don't know the greater context, uh, can be indeed um, read as Zelensky is, uh, kind of has these authoritarian um, tendencies and we are making him a hero. Like, what are we doing? But the bigger context here is that Ukraine, so Zelensky is just one of the many presidents of Ukraine. Just like Churchill, he may not win re-election after the war, even though he's viewed as a war hero right now. And if Ukraine may, is able to defend its sovereignty and continues to have free and fair elections, the bigger context here is that Ukraine does have government turnover. It doesn't have government-imposed censorship. It has complete freedom of assembly. And Russia has none of those things. It's a police state, right? So it's really important to remember the broader context here and that if you're kind of uh, hearing a story that comes from RT or some other Russian propaganda uh, channels, um, but prob probably uh, the kind of the bigger message is, is oftentimes exactly the opposite of what they're trying to convince you. Just uh, 30 seconds left. I just wanted uh, how, how for those who want to help uh, folks in Ukraine, what to give to your favorite humanitarian organization? What, uh, what would you suggest? Uh, there are multiple. I really like uh, the recently created True Russia. I think it's very important for anyone who sympathizes with Ukraine and with Russian people who are now the... And, and there is, by the way, as we're seeing the millions of people flee Ukraine, there are also hundreds of thousands fleeing Russia. Mm -hmm. So truerussia.org is very interesting. Uh, the refugee crisis so far seems to be handled very well uh, by the Eastern European allies. Uh, but probably down the road, they will need more help. But I would also urge uh, your audience, if they know anyone inside Russia, now is the time to reach out and share you know, a story by the BBC or Reuters or some other credible mm. news source or UPR. Um, they, uh, most people in Russia really do not have access to information. Yeah. Interesting, yeah, a way you can help. Anna Pechenkina is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Utah State University, has been with us uh, talking about this important subject. Thank you so much. Thank you. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah Today. 
Look up, look around, get lost in space. Guy Watcher Leo T here on the International Space Station. Geopolitical tensions won't keep an American astronaut and two Russian cosmonauts from returning to Earth. Together as planned this month, the three will undock from the space station in a Soyuz spacecraft and land in the Kazakhstan March 30th. And on Tuesday at the ISS, NASA astronauts Kayla Barron and Raja Chari installed brackets and support struts for a new ISS rollout solar array during a spacewalk Tuesday, March 15th on the starboard side. The space station is now ready for the addition of an upgraded solar array after a nearly seven-hour spacewalk. This gives us hope for the future of the only international space station there is. And for an asteroid hunter, a big thrill on Friday as astronomer Christian Sarnecki, an observatory in Hungary, spotted a small asteroid that ended up plowing into the Earth's atmosphere and vaporizing in a fireball over the Norwegian Sea. Not all that far from Ireland, where it's St. Patrick's Day, and in Skylore from Ireland, since St. Patrick scared away all the snakes there, we can look up to Hydra the Snake, which is the longest constellation in the sky, and it's viewed around the world as it's one sky, many cultures. In Hindu mythology, Hydra represented one of the nakshatras of Hindu astrology. The Chinese saw it as the vermilion bird and the azure dragon. In Greek mythology, it represents the water snake brought to the god Apollo by Corvus the crow. And another constellation up there is Perseus, a Greek hero and son of Zeus. But in Celtic tradition, it's known as Lu, and was the primary god representing the red sun. His name in common language would have been Cock Robin, from the belief that souls become birds after death. And happy birthday to Albert Einstein. March 14, 1879. We need you right now. This is from an op-ed by David Sky Brody in Space.com. He left us a tool set to manage a healthy planet without war. Albert Einstein was allergic to authoritarians. His dislike of dogma, playful nature, and ability to constructively concentrate let him visualize unorthodox ways the universe might operate. Some of these proved to be true. Daydreaming his way to deeper understandings was his superpower, and it can be ours too. Through internal journeys of pure thought, Einstein looked behind the apparent reality of the day-to-day to glimpse the counterintuitive mechanisms that prop up what we believe to be true. By this process, Albert Einstein turned Isaac Newton's universe of absolutes inside out. Einstein's infectious positivity can help us navigate these confusing and contentious times. His ability to encapsulate in an aphorism a deep truth we can feel can lift us up. Though he gave us relativistic physics, Einstein sought the comfort of absolutes. He felt there must be a simple, balanced, undeniable order to the workings of all things, a root causality. His goal was to help reveal it through science, but he felt it must exist whether or not it could be observed. Good stuff. But as we do observe in our galaxy, the Hubble Space Telescope was at the perfect angle to capture a nearly impossible shot of two dancing galaxies. You can see the galaxies warping in three dimensions. You can see this on the Skywatcher Facebook page as well as the sources for this program. Deep within the Andromeda constellation, some 320 million light years away, two galaxies are consumed by a gravitationally bound dance, and the telescope just photographed the action in extraordinary three-dimensional detail. NASA officials wrote that galaxies Galaxies can merge, collide, or brush past one another, each interaction significantly affecting their shapes and structures. The spring equinox is already here for the Northern Hemisphere at 9.33 in the morning on Sunday, March 20th. And it's one of two moments in the year when the sun is exactly above the equator and a day and a night are of equal length. So keep looking up, look around, and getting lost in space. 
Skywatcher Leo T on UPR with translator station statewide and streaming live.